You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. All right, so we got a lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to jump right into chapter 14 and begin to unpack some things. I'll give you a heads up. We're going to um, come at this a little bit systematically from the start, so uh, if you have questions about... um, the, the spiritual gift of prophecy or the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. If, if you're going, man, I, I've had experiences along the way with churches and I'm not sure what jives with scripture um, and, and what needs to be tested under the banner of scripture. What can I hold on to? What do I need to discard? We, we wanna address some of that on the front end. And so we are gonna get a little systematic theologically on the front end of this, but then we're gonna move into, as Paul does in this chapter of the Bible, into practical implications for us that um, cross all, all um, spans of time historically uh, to all places so that um, those things matter for us immensely uh, even today. And so that's where we're going. So if you look at verse 1, Paul begins with uh, the phrase pursue love. Going back to last week, Jason unpacked chapter 13 for us that if we have all of these gifts that have been given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, but we don't have love, we're, we're just uh, championing noise at that, at that point. And Paul's going to get at that even more in this chapter. And so he says again in In verse 1 of chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And so the the misuse of spiritual gifts does not warrant the abandonment of spiritual gifts, Paul would argue, that, that we should desire them all the more because they're for the glory of God and the good of the church. And so the first question this morning would simply be, do you desire spiritual gifts? Um, do, do you desire the gifts that you don't have? Are you praying to God to, to gift you even more so for the good of others in the church so that you can be a part of strengthening the body of Christ and seeing more people come to know Jesus? Paul gets into, first of all, this gift of prophecy. And so uh, before we go any further with this, I just want to throw out a definition, and then I'll attempt to unpack that for us as it pertains to the spiritual gift of prophecy. It's up on the screen. The spiritual gift of prophecy is the conveying of something spontaneously brought to mind by God, but which is spoken in fallible human words, not words of God. So when you think of prophecy in the Bible, what comes to mind? Typically, for most of us, it's one of two things. It's either this idea of predicting the future, and so um, I, I, I understand from God that this is going to happen three weeks from now, and I'm predicting that, and that's a prophetic message from me. That's one route that you might be inclined to take that, that particular idea of prophecy. The other would be the idea of speaking God's very words as his mouthpiece. Um, that phrase, thus says the Lord. You go back to the Old Testament, and you see prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jonah, Malachi, and the list goes on. Um, when we think of the word prophet or prophecy, these ideas may come to the forefront of our minds. And for most of us, that tends to be the case. But the spiritual gift of prophecy is something altogether different in Paul's mind. That um, scripture's clear that we're not talking about the very words of God here um, with authority equal to the Old Testament prophets and in the New Testament scriptures. First uh, Thessalonians 5:20 says, "Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So, so there's a hanging on to what's from God and there's a discarding that which is not. 
Even in this morning's text, if you fast forward to verse 29, it says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. There's a weighing. There's a putting this thing on the scales and seeing whether it balances in in the direction of God or whether it balances in the direction of something that's not of God. And so you might ask, why did the meaning of the word change? Because in the Old Testament, a prophet was someone who um, declared, thus says the Lord. They were the very words of God. Well, the reality is by the time that Jesus came on the scene, that word prophet, that word prophecy um, had become culturally muddied. And so you had philosophers, theologians, even pagans that were using that word in a, in a variety of ways. There was a, a broad brushstroke to the meaning of that word. And so Old Testament prophets came to be known as New Testament apostles. That's where we get that, that word from. Um, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus who have been commissioned to take the gospel forward. And so by the time you get to Paul's writings, including 1 Corinthians, the word prophet or prophecy means something altogether different. So we're not talking about the very words of God with authority equal to Old Testament prophets or um, the scriptures. Um, you, you don't have to weigh the, the words of God. You don't have to weigh the Bible to determine if it's true. It's infallible. It's inerrant. We Christians believe in the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture. But Paul says to weigh, to test the words of those with the spiritual gift of prophecy. So we're talking about something spontaneously brought to mind by God, but which is spoken in fallible human words. And so maybe you've had someone come up to you and say, um, hey, God told me to tell you blank, right? There there are guys that do this on every college campus in America that has a Christian or two on it. Man, God told me we're supposed to date. So, you know, you and me, we need to get together for a dinner and a movie this week. And we use that to leverage things, and sometimes the motive isn't necessarily bad. We really do believe that God is is doing something there, but that kind of language is not helpful. That thus says the Lord kind of language. You and I don't have apostolic authority behind our words. What we can say is, I think the Lord is putting on my mind or my heart that blank, fill in the blank with however you'd finish that sentence, or it seems to me that the Lord is showing me blank. And then we submit ourselves to the weighing or the testing of that statement to see, is this from God or or is it not? Is he on the move? That's the spiritual gift of prophecy. It's not some weird um, alien life form type of thing. It's, It's God putting something on the mind or the heart of a person, which is meant to build up the church. It's meant to edify the church. And if it's from God, the spirit will cause it to speak with power to those it was intended for. Um, I read probably a dozen systematic theologies and commentaries this week to, to prep for this passage to make sure that I wasn't losing my mind as I was unpacking this before you guys. And, and so let me share with you um, from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book um, how he unpacks this idea of prophecy. He says this, Paul is referring to something that God may suddenly bring to mind or something that God may impress on someone's consciousness in such a way that the person has a sense that it is from God. It may be that the thought brought to mind is surprisingly distinct from the person's own train of thought or that it is accompanied by a sense of vividness or urgency or persistence or in some other way gives the person a rather clear sense that it is from the Lord. Some of you guys are like, dude, that happens to me all the time. And if so, and those moments prove to truly be from God in the aftermath, you just might have the spiritual gift of prophecy. And if that's you right now, you're probably going, well, I'm not telling anybody that because that just sounds weird. I'm not going to go out this week and say I have the spiritual gift of prophecy. People are going to think I'm crazy, right? And they just might because the the word itself has been so misconstrued that um, people have defined it in a number of ways that aren't helpful so that that is 
possible, but I do think that we need to um, bring things back around and give biblical meaning and definition to these words that we find in the scriptures rather than running from them. And so if you have that gift, um, th- there's a purpose behind that. What, what is the purpose of prophecy? Coming back to the definition, the purpose is to build up, encourage, and or comfort the gathered church. You see that in verse three. On the other hand, Paul says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That every statement that begins with, it seems to me that God is laying on my heart blank, should lead to either others being built up, spiritually advanced by what you say, um, others being encouraged, made glad in the heart by what you say, or others being consoled or comforted in a time of pain or grief by what you say, that these are the purposes of the spiritual gift of prophecy, and they exist for the strengthening of the church. And there's also a missional bent to it. If you fast forward to verses 24 and 25, it says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That that this particular gift, as God lays things on the hearts and minds of his people um, for the sake of his church, um, can also lead to the conversion of unbelievers as um, God works in and through us to point them to the person and work of Jesus. And so who benefits from this gift? The answer is the church and those who will become the church, those who the church will reach for Jesus. Verse four, the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse five, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And then again, verses 24 and 25, unbelievers are a part of those who benefit from this gift too. And so the, the big question is, how should we respond as we go out of this place this morning? The answer is this, you should desire this gift and ask God to give it to you. Paul says in verse one, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Verse 39, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. That that we should have this desire, this anticipation uh, that God might actually wanna give us this gift where he begins to bring things to mind that the church needs to hear, that people in our community groups need to hear, that people who don't know Jesus need to hear as we engage them in conversation as, as God works in and through us. That's the spiritual gift of prophecy. What about the gift of tongues? What can we say about uh, the gift of speaking in tongues? Highly controversial spiritual gift, right? When you think of tongues, what comes to mind? For for many of us, it's Acts chapter two, right? Holy Spirit falling from heaven um, like fire, filling his people, and everyone uh, is speaking in different languages. As a result, people from various nations are able to understand the gospel in their own native languages, and so there's this missional evangelistic purpose behind what took place in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, right? Um, and, And that's true. There was a reversing of what happened at the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament where uh, you you have people being dispersed because they were trying to make a name for themselves and now they speak different languages. And here God brings people back together from various nations to make much of, of God himself. And so there is that element. But what Paul's talking about in Corinth is very different from what happened at Pentecost. Here, Paul's definition of tongues might go something like this. It's up on the screen. Praying to or praising God in a language unknown to the speaker, perhaps not even following the patterns of any human language. 
So if you look at verse two, going back to that verse, it says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. So the gift of prophecy is God um, through his people communicating things for the edification of the church. Speaking in tongues is God's people directing uh, something toward God, according to verse two. And he goes on to say, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. That there's something mysterious about this particular language um, that Paul's addressing here. If you go back to chapter 13, what Jason unpacked last week, Paul says in verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, that there's this angelic language that can even be spoken by human beings if we have this particular spiritual gift that, that Paul's driving at. So, so speaking in tongues is talking to God in a language unknown to the speaker, whether it's a foreign language or an angelic type of language. There's no indication that speaking in tongues is a normative thing in the Bible, and there's no indication that speaking in tongues is a requirement of all Christians. Um, some charismatic churches would disagree with, with that, and um, the burden of proof is on them. According to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, um, if you go back a couple of chapters, remember, Paul says, the spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills that we don't all have every gift that the Spirit is capable of giving. What's the purpose? Well, why does this gift of tongues exist? Well, Paul gives the answer to that in verses 14 through 17. He says, the purpose is to express prayer, praise, or thanksgiving to God. He says in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Verse 15, I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind also. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So what Paul says in these verses is that the purpose of this gift is that God might be a recipient of our prayers, that God might be a recipient of our praise, and that God might be a recipient of our gratitude. And so in other words, God's glory is at stake as we talk about this particular gift. If you're one of those people that's like, yeah, uh, speaking in tongues is off the table. I don't even want to talk about it. It's quirky. It's weird. There's an issue of God's glory at stake as you address this particular gift. And so we want to unpack this this morning. Who benefits from this gift? The answer is the one who speaks in tongues. Verse 4, the one, very clearly Paul says it, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Now, there's nothing wrong with self-edification, right? That's, that's typically the point of a quiet time, a, a time of devotion with the Lord. But Paul's been, been driving for several chapters here that it's immensely important that uh, we build up others in the church using the gifts that God has given us. And so Paul unpacks how he feels about this particular gift, that he's for this gift, he would have liked for every Christian in Corinth to have the gift of speaking in tongues. Verse five, he says it plain as day. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Verse 39, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Uh, verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul sees immense value in this particular spiritual gift and yet he sees more value in the gift of prophecy Going back to verse five, he says, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So Paul says, tongues are a good gift, um, a gift from the Holy Spirit himself, and, and yet the gift of prophecy brings to bear the greatest gift of all. Going back to chapter 13, love, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, building them up. 
It's not loving to others to demonstrate a gift in the midst of others um, that doesn't edify or encourage them. And so Paul lays out some limitations of this particular gift. I want to drive at these for just a few minutes. Um, number one, without interpretation, the, gift, the spiritual gift of, of tongues cannot build up the church. That uh, without interpretation, it's just noise. Going back to chapter 13, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. He says in, in verse six, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? That, that idea of revelation, that's an intelligible communication. Knowledge is an intelligible communication. Prophecy, teaching, these are intelligible forms of communication. The church can benefit from intelligible communication. Without interpretation, Paul says, tongues are a form of unintelligible communication. And he gives some examples. Look at verse seven. He says, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played that without interpretation, tongues are as beneficial as um, your kid learning how to play the flute, right? Have you, you ever sat with a little kid trying to learn an instrument for the first time, and all of a sudden it feels like you're bleeding from the ears because it's so bad? That, that's the example that Paul's using. He goes, that, that would be the equivalent to bringing this gift to bear in the context of the church gathered without someone to make sense of it. It's like a child trying to learn an instrument. And he goes on and further says in verse 8, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? That we know that um, the bugle is meant to, to put forth the battle cry that then calls people to the battle field. And what Paul's saying is that um, a bugle without a distinct battle cry will cause no one to fight the good fight of faith. That um, that bugle at that point is just making noise. And the same thing with you and I, that to utilize this gift of speaking in tongues in the context of the church gathered without interpretation it's just noise. It's like a bugle not putting forth a distinct battle cry. It benefits no one. It edifies no one. It causes no one to fight the good fight of faith. And so he says in verse 9, with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. You'll just, you'll just be making noise for noise sake. And and he goes on to make his point through another uh, analogy uh, as he drives at foreign languages in the world. Look at verse 10. He says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. That the whole point of human language is to communicate meaning, right? And so he says in verse 11, um, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. That, that if you don't understand a language, it's meaningless to you, that it doesn't matter if French is an intelligible language. If you don't speak French or understand French, it's not intelligible to you. It's a foreign language to you. And at, at that point, it won't benefit you to enter into a conversation with someone speaking that language. And Paul says, in the same way, you won't benefit as the church by sitting in the midst of unintelligible language, that without interpretation, making it intelligible, tongues is it's foreign, it's unhelpful to the gathered church. It's actually barbaric. Paul goes a step further than most of us would. He's very bold here. The, the word translated foreigner in most of your Bibles in verse 11 is the Greek word barbaros, which means barbarian, literally. And so Paul's saying, speaking in tongues without interpretation on which you, the Christians in Corinth, pride yourself is actually quite barbaric. It makes you barbarian-like to do so. So, verse 12, he says, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up 
the church. Strive to strengthen the faith of others. We've been talking about this for weeks. Pursue and desire especially the gifts of the Spirit that will strengthen the faith of others in the church. Paul says without interpretation, the gift of tongues can't do that. That's a limitation. Second limitation, without interpretation, tongues cannot involve all of a person's faculties. Look at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Paul's saying, yes, it's spiritually beneficial to speak in tongues, um, but it's unfruitful to the rational mind of the person that, that does so, as well as those around him or her. It's, it's worship absent of one of the uh, key faculties meant to engage in the worship of God, namely the mind. That, that worship should never be the mind absent of the spirit, that's intellectualism, nor should worship be the spirit absent of the mind, that's emotionalism. We, we need both, both mind and spirit matter in worship. And so Paul asks in verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. This brings up a very practical question for us this morning. Um, when you engage in singing, when we gather as the church, um, is your mind engaged uh, in the words on that screen that you're singing, or, or is it just a mindless recitation of things that you've sung a hundred times or more? What about prayer? When you engage in prayer, does your mind engage in that, or is it just a recitation of words you've said a thousand times before? God, thank you for this food. Pray that it'll be nourishing to my body and me to your service. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We say these things and they just become mundane for us. And, and this passage is a call back to re-engage our minds in the things of God along with, with our very hearts. Paul says, I want all of my faculties engaged in the things of God. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, Paul says, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. You've been in a service where uh, during the sermon, someone throws out a hearty amen or preach it, brother. I love when that happens because I know people are actually awake. You know, they're alive, they're breathing, you know, out in the chairs. And, and that typically happens because someone receives something from the Lord that stirs them, that, that moves them. And what Paul's saying is you can't be stirred, you can't be moved in the midst of unintelligible language, unintelligible things. You can't say amen to something that you don't understand. You can't say amen to something when you don't know whether or not it's from God. And thus Paul says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. In other words, it is a good gift. It's not to be discarded. Paul's not belittling the gift. He's pushing back on the misuse of the gift. And so he says in verse 19, nevertheless, um, though I thank God that I have this gift, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. In other words, Paul says, when the church gathers, the clear, intelligible communication of the gospel always wins. Or we could say it this way, clear gospel truth always trumps charismatic disarray. Third limitation, Without interpretation, tongues can actually damage the mission of the church, can, can destroy the evangelistic bent of the church. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Paul says, think, put on your thinking cap here. The mission of the church is at stake in what I'm about to say. And in verse 21, he lays it out. He says, in the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people? And even then they will not listen to me 
says the Lord. Um, verse 21, at first glance, appears to be a really strange out of place um, reference back to Isaiah chapter 28, but it's actually quite brilliant. Here's what Paul's doing. He, he says, the prophet Isaiah back in his day warned the Israelites that God would exile them to Assyria to a place uh, where people would speak a language that, that they did not understand. And this was to be a communication of God's judgment upon them for their disobedience to the Lord. And then Paul brings this reference um, from Isaiah 28 to bear on the church in Corinth. He says this in verse 22. He says, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? That Paul's saying tongues are not a positive sign leading people to faith, they're actually a negative sign of God's judgment upon non-Christians, that speaking in tongues in a disorderly fashion within, uh, when the church gathers won't bring unbelievers to faith. It'll actually cause them to go, I think you guys are out of your mind, and cause them to run from the church possibly forever to their own destruction, just like Israel ran from God. Prophecy, however, Paul says, has a missional bent to it. Again, verses 24 and 25. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That that, that gift of prophecy can bring an unbeliever to a place of conviction as he sees God at work in the midst of God's people. Whoa, how could you possibly have known that was true? For that person, how could you have possibly known that was true for my life? And all of a sudden, God is on the move, and people see that, and they're stirred, and they're drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ. They're drawn to say, God is here, rather than you're crazy by way of this gift. Now, the question becomes, what do we do with all this, okay? Let me hit... Let me hit the stop button on the systematic theology session for the morning and ask the question, what does this mean for all of us? Paul's great here. He asked that very question in verse 26. He says, what then, brothers? Okay, I've unpacked all of this for you. You're abusing these gifts of the Spirit, and so I want to answer some questions. But what does this mean for all of us? And moving forward out of verse 26, he, he seeks to answer that question. What are we to do with all of this that, that we've unpacked this morning? What are the implications? And so I wanna lay out just a few practical implications that are, that are timeless and yet timely for us today. Coming out of verses 26 and beyond. Number one, God loves to give good gifts to the church. Look at verse 26. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Notice the diversity of gifts on that list and what it takes for all of those things to come together, that God loves to give a diversity of gifts to his church for strengthening the faith of his people. And so when the church gathers, many of those gifts should be leveraged for the glory of God and the good of the church. As God has gifted you, you're meant not to squander that gift, but to use that gift for the edification of others in the church. And so the question becomes, when we gather together, how can you be spent for God's glory? I love to use that phrase because it's more compelling than, will you please sign up on one of our volunteer teams? Like that, that's just not compelling. But to be asked the question, how can God spend you, leverage you for his glory and the good of the church? That's a compelling question. What does it look like to answer that question as you, as you sit with that? How might God wanna leverage you for his glory and for the, the edification, the good, and the growth of his church? 
Second practical implication, we should anticipate God to move. We should expect God to move. Notice, looking back at that same sentence in verse 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Notice, we sing hymns here, right? That happens. We have lessons, a time of teaching. That's what's going on right now. When was the last time we had a revelation on a Sunday morning? When was the last time we had a tongue on a Sunday morning? When was the last time we had an interpretation of a tongue on a Sunday morning? Someone asked me the million-dollar question a couple of weeks ago, um, why do you think we don't see these things in our midst? And, and I think that's a complex question to answer. I think there are certainly layers to that answer. It's not a simple answer. But I do think that one piece of the answer to that question is that we don't expect God to move when we gather as his people. We don't anticipate that God's gonna do wondrous things when we come together and gather as his people. I said this a couple weeks ago. We, we come in like car heaters, right? It takes us about 20 minutes to warm up and kind of get it to the right temperature spiritually. And so poor James has to lead us through a song that he's wondering, why did I prep this first song? No one ever sings it. And I'm putting words in his mouth. He didn't really say that, but I've led worship in the past and I've felt that and I'm sure others have too. We, we all just come in and it's, it's like we don't, we don't expect God to to do things. We don't expect God to be on the move when, when we gather as his people. Think about it. In this room right now are dozens of people who are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. When we come together collectively, there should be a superpower work of God in our midst as God is on the move in and through his people. But we don't expect God to do that. What would it look like if we did? And not just when we came here every week, but when we woke up, as I said a couple weeks ago, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so forth, and so on. It doesn't necessarily mean that tongues will show up on the scene. I don't know what would happen. It may mean that you talk to someone that you might not have been inclined to talk to before because you just feel like God is directing you um, toward them. Uh, it may mean that you pray for someone that you wouldn't have prayed for otherwise because God's stirring your heart for that person and you just feel like they need prayer. It may mean that when you open your Bible during this time every week that you, you expect, you anticipate that God's going to sanctify you as we open the scriptures and begin to, to plow through the very word of God. If we woke up expecting, if we woke up anticipating God to move in our midst and to do something through us and in us, through our gifts, I think we'd be blown away at what God would do. Number three, God gives you and I gifts for the strengthening of others' faith. We've been driving at this for weeks now. Verse 26 at the end says, let all things be done for building up. That, that God gives the church a diversity of gifts and it's not for the purpose of self-exaltation. If God's gifted you, it's for the purpose of leveraging that gift for the building up of others. There's an outward directing of that gift. That's similar to marriage. If you're, if you're married, it's not so that you could have your needs met and be the center of someone else's universe. If you're married, it's so that you can put the gospel on display by dying to self and serving the other. And the same thing is true of spiritual gifts. If you're gifted by the Holy Spirit, it's not so that you can make much of yourself as the center, which is what many people seek to do with the gifts God's given them. Rather, it's so that you could put the gospel on display by dying to self and serving others. We show this graphic during our partnership course, and I'll throw it up on the screen for you. There's a difference between the consumer church and the missional 
church. The consumer church is seen as a dispenser of religious goods and services. People come to church to be fed, to have their needs met through quality programs, and to have professionals teach their children about God. The the mantra is, I go to church. And there's nothing wrong with quality programs. There's nothing wrong with teaching children about God that's happening over in our kids' wing right now. But there's something vastly different about the missional church which is seen as a body of people sent on a mission who gather together for worship, community, encouragement, and teaching from the word in addition to what they are feeding themselves throughout the week. The mantra is not I go to church, but rather I am the church. You and I, if you're a Christian, we are the church. We're the bride of Christ. If we thought that way, we wouldn't choose a church based on what's in it for us. We'd be highly more inclined to look around and go, I see a need here and God's gifted me and I can meet that, so this is gonna be our church home. And that would change things drastically in this land of cultural Christianity. Number four, God is most glorified through order, not chaos. Verses 27 through 33. Um, for, for those who say, you know, we just need to let the spirit move freely in this place, bro. Structure just kind of, you know, uh, quenches the spirit and inhibits God. God himself would disagree with that in this very passage. God himself has ordained that the means by which his spirit moves is through the ordered gathering of the church. Look at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. This debunks the idea that speaking in tongues is an uncontrollable, ecstatic utterance. Um, people who say, I mean, I just can't, like, God's moving through me. I can't control it. I just have to say it. These verses make clear that people could control themselves and take turns. That before beginning to speak in tongues, that person was expected to ask, is there an interpreter here today? Because I think God wants to say something in a really strange way, and I need to know that we're going to be biblical here. There's a sense of order to all of this. Um, it's not what you see in a lot of churches. That It was actually the pagans in Paul's day who would get caught up in personal ecstatic utterances in worship. They'd have no regard for others in the temples. It was chaotic, it was, it was disorderly, and it was highly self-absorbed. And what Paul's saying is our God is not like the pagan gods. There should be order and there should be an interpreter. Otherwise, there should be no audible use of this gift. And the same thing with prophecy, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. There's room in the church for statements like, I think the Lord is putting on my mind blank. But, but again, we're talking human words, not words on the same level with scripture. And so those words must be weighed. Anytime someone says to you, I think God wants me to share uh, blank with you, you should always, always test that, especially if you're a lady in college because you have no idea of what that guy's saying to you in that moment. Paul goes on in verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. Notice the order to all this. So that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That he's saying that, that the spirit within you is, is subject to you. Like you, you, there's an ability to control yourself because God is a God of order. And he says that in verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That if you find yourself in the midst of a church gathering and it's just gone haywire, it's likely unbiblical. The creation itself is God shaping chaos into order, right? He, he took the land and he shaped it into mountains and valleys and hills and trenches. He took the water and he shaped it into rivers and streams and lakes and oceans. God loves to bring order to chaos. He, he does that with our very lives, right? That's the gospel, 
that, that my life, that your life, if you're a Christian, your life was complete chaos. It was a train wreck. You realized that you couldn't claw your way back into God's good graces, that you needed God to intervene. And he did so through the person and work of Jesus, that we couldn't reach out and grab God. And so God came down. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, that God became man and live the life that we could never live, died the death that you and I deserve to die in our place as our substitute. He rose from death, conquering sin and death. And now he sits at the right hand of the father, ruling and reigning. And he is a king of order and peace. He loves to make something beautiful out of the mess. That's what God does. So why in the world would we think that chaos and confusion in the midst of the gathered church would glorify that kind of God? And then lastly, Here's where it gets controversial. Number five, God's gifts align with God's design. Let's read what could be construed as a couple of very controversial verses leading into verse 34. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Seriously, Paul? I mean... We're already unpacking tongues and prophecy. He couldn't have maybe nudged that one off to another chapter so we could deal with that one a little, a little later. No, he goes right at it. Is he delusional? I mean, is he, is he completely contradictory to his own words? Because if you go back to chapter 11, remember, if you were here, we, we unpacked a very progressive couple of verses where Paul says that women can pray and prophesy in the gathered church. So Paul has said just a few chapters earlier that women can speak in church. Is he now saying, ladies, when you come in this auditorium next Sunday, just know that uh, an application of this sermon is that you zip it and just let all of us guys you know, talk. And even you know, after the service, maybe you guys wanna just leave the auditorium and go into a more informal setting to, to talk with each other. No, that's not what Paul's saying at all. Um, I, I think that would be, absurd knowing that Paul is a brilliant theologian, it'd be the worst argument he could possibly make. It'd be like if I said, um, hey guys, I mean, I love dogs. They're, they're just, if I was gonna own a pet, I would own a dog because aren't dogs just awesome? The other day I was driving down the street, I saw this dog out in a field and he was just rolling in the grass. He looked so happy, so content. Man, aren't dogs just stupid? They're, they're the dumbest animals in the animal kingdom that, that you could possibly be around. If I said that, you would go, um, you, you just said that you love dogs. It's not like Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that women can pray and prophesy in the church and then all of a sudden we're in a different book of the Bible and now he's saying something that appears to contradict. He just said it three chapters ago that women can engage in these gifts that are, are vocal giftings in the context of the church gathered. So what do we do with this? I'm inclined to want to reconcile this and give Paul the benefit of the doubt because he's not an idiot. If you've read the New Testament, you know that the man is brilliant. He knows exactly the, the argument he's trying to make at any given point. And so I, I like D.A. Carson's interpretation, who also is a brilliant scholar and theologian. What he says is, once again, you can't take verses and just slap them on a coffee cup. They're, they're um, established in context for a reason. Context matters. And in context, Paul has just argued that the church in Corinth must carefully weigh these statements, hey, I think God um, wants me to share this with you. And so Carson argues that Paul, going back to chapter 11, is saying women can prophesy. They can be a part of these, these statements of, hey, I think God is, is on the move here, and I think he wants me to share this for the good of the church, but that uh, men are to participate in the weighing of whether or not this is 
This is from God. So going back to a few weeks ago, God has designed men and women in distinct ways to dance this dance. And there's a need for a lead. And so men are called to lovingly lead. And yet without women, men look like idiots on the dance floor, right? It takes two to tango. And men and women were both created on this planet for a purpose to to uh, dance this dance with one another as we come together as the church. If you think about it, the, the weighing of these statements, I, I think God wants me to share whatever it is. That, that's a governing, ruling type of function of the church. It's a protecting of the sheep from false teaching, which is actually a role of elders. And so um, Carson argues that Paul's attempting to preserve um, male headship, male eldership here, um, that, that Paul's more progressive than many in his day as it pertains to women, but he also realizes that God's design matters. If you go back to chapter 11, and if you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen because I think these two have to go hand in hand. But as it pertains to, to this particular gift and the testing of it, God has given that role to, to men in the church and possibly even the, the elders of the church some even argue that uh, you could add this layer to it, that it goes back to chapter 11 where uh, wives were disgracing their husbands in the context of the church gather. And you can imagine, uh, you know, your husband, if you're, if you're married, you know, all of a sudden in the context of the church says, hey, I think God has placed something on my heart and I want to share it with you guys. And, and then in front of everyone in the church, you, um, as his wife, vocally say, I don't think so, honey. You know, just kind of one of those, you know, subversive kind of, you're an idiot, that's not really God on the move. And there's this disgracing piece. You can make your husband look really stupid. And, and so there's possibly that element layered on top of, of all of this. Um, but what we have to keep in mind as we read this is that Paul follows Jesus, who is one of the most progressive men in human history as it pertains to uh, women, uh, and, and so is Paul throughout his writings because he follows Jesus. And so we should probably give Paul the benefit of the doubt and attempt to reconcile and, and see how the, uh, all of this works together as you read through um, his progressive train of thought moving forward. If you want to talk about that more, we can, we can grab coffee. Verse 36, he says, Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it is reached? In other words, Paul says, are, are you guys the only ones who know what's Christian? Like, you, you may be inclined as you, as you work through a passage like this to go, I don't know, I don't think so. My experience says this, and my experience trumps Bible. We, we would never say that, but, but oftentimes that's how we determine our theology, right? I experienced this back in the day, and I know the Bible says otherwise, but my experience feels more real to me. And so that's what becomes Christian in my mind. And Paul says in verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, you can, in the name of spirituality all day long, rip verses out, add your own verses in, but it doesn't make the Bible any less authoritative at the end of the day. Paul says, my apostolic authority trumps how you feel when you, when you come across certain passages of Scripture. And then he closes in verse 39 and 40 with these words, kind of summing up his whole point. He says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, 
but all things should be done decently and in order. In other words, anticipate, expect, desire the gifts of the Spirit so that God might do great and wondrous things in and through you for the good of his church, and then practice those gifts in a way that puts the orderly character of God on display. I'll leave you with this quote this morning that kind of sums up how the gospel applies to this entire chapter of the Bible. Um, Stephen Um in his commentary says this. He says, our intelligibility and contextualization is grounded in the accommodating, intelligible work of God in Christ. Though he could have been self-interested, he chose to be other-interested. Though he could have spoken another language, one that was beyond us, a heavenly-coded language, he adapted himself to our language in order that he might be understood. And in order to make clear his commitment to us and to overcome our self-interest and sin, he gave himself up in the most intelligible act of all time, the cross of Christ. This act made it forever clear and undeniable that God so loved the world. How could he have made it any clearer? And now all of our gifts are intended to be used to make this redemptive act of God clear and compelling. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.